0: Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for December 2016, I am writer hyphen, get into the sea 2016, be gone you foul beast, and yes 2016 is an artificial construct, but so are all units of measurement, and I don't see you making fun of the metric system, unless you're American, because they actually do, but seriously America, why haven't you switched yet to the metric system, although obviously you have bigger problems than that, which is part of the reason 2016 was such an odious fucker, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is...
1: Uh, Couch hyphen potato, sofa (laughs) mayor.
0: Welcome to the last show of 2016.
1: (laughs) Lee and I reverse personalities and he does the political...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we both uh, touched that magic coin at the same time. I think that must have been what did it. We are going to be joined by our special guest in our very next segment. But until then, the films of this month... We begin, of course, with Rogue One, and um, it's interesting because we're back in the Star Wars universe, and this time last year, you and I were talking about The Force Awakens, and I described it back then as a film I loved but didn't like because I had a great experience in the cinema, but the moment I started thinking about it, it, it fell apart a little, not completely, but just a little bit, and Rogue One did the opposite for me. I didn't love watching it, and I don't know if that was the film or just the mood I was in. But I came out thinking, okay, fine, that was that was okay. And then the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. I thought about the film's themes, I thought about its characters, its design, its ethos. And after the fact, I kind of came around to the realisation that it was really, really good. So I, I think I'm going to have to go and give it another go just to figure out where the needle lands for me. But, uh, yeah, what did you think?
1: I think you're going to be in good company at the Carrie Fisher Memorial mm. Screening. Um, at which I hope people will take scissors to the last three minutes of the film cut out that egregious digital construction and just get some brilliant sketch comedians to perform in the spirit of Carrie Fisher as she is today, as she was. So I felt like the ending left a very sour taste in my mouth, obviously, and it wasn't just the, wow, floppy discs were such advanced technology in 1977 and we're kind of (laughs) stuck with can't I just beam this from my iPhone? I felt like it had classic franchiseitis in that it's a fantastic cast, well directed in terms of character performances in a story that just went round in circles. Mm. And I, I should say upfront, and you know whatever docks me on Twitter, I'm not a massive Star Wars fan. It's not part of the mythos of my childhood. It just never took for me, including Princess Leia. And I had hair down to my waist, so I could have done those plaits if I wanted to. <laughs> the thing that I really enjoyed about it was discovering that Diego Luna really is A-list, international leading man material. I thought his performance was fantastic. Mm. It was gritty. It was in the spirit of Han Solo. I thought this, this film had a lot more grit than um, The Force Awakens. Uh, Gareth Edwards is a much less shiny, shiny, happy, happy director. Everything looked filthy all the time, and uh, I kind of I kind of appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to watch a film that's really about data and hacking, obviously, in, you know, the year of our Lord WikiLeaks. (laughs) This this is essentially a film about heroising hackers. So even if the plot makes no sense, like, how could he have known that his broadcast would get to his daughter, whose only really heroic skill is recognising her own name so it was very it was very bitty for me there were you know performances i enjoyed design i enjoyed i thought there was a lot of very british overacting that kept throwing me out of the star wars world and i thought that the digital reconstructions were disgusting and egregious and i want to apologize i'm always apologizing people. i do want to apologize to forrest Whisker as well for his noble completely pointless Sacrifice. He
0: yeah, what up. was that about?
1: What was that about? What was it about? But also I want to apologise to Peter Cushing and Carrie Fisher as well. I think her dog George will savage Gareth Edwards' leg.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh great, uh I think, isn't it Gary? Gary.
1: Gary, yes, Gary. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I thought it was a very Christmassy film. It was really about like flying around in space, delivering presents. So mm. I thought it was very topical.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another film that came out uh, this month, at least in Australia, one I saw back at the f- film festival in July, uh, was Patterson, the new Jim Jarmusch film about a bus driver poet who drives a bus and writes poetry, and not a lot else happens. This, for me, is not a bad thing. Um, this is my favourite Jarmusch film is Dead Man, and this feels completely of a piece with that film, um, even though this one is contemporary and urban and steeped in realism i feel like the conceit of dead man is at play here we've got uh, a, a character says at the end translated poetry is like taking a shower in a raincoat and i i, I wonder if that's how jamush feels about biopics I, I felt like dead man was him telling the story of william blake's life through people who exist in another world to blake but who are aware of him and i wonder if patterson was doing the same thing you know patterson Shares a name with Patterson, New Jersey, and that city plays a big part in the narrative. You know what the city is like. Which famous people come from there? Uh, William Carlos Williams is mentioned a lot, and the details of his life, I, I'm, I I don't know, and and kind of feel irrelevant in 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 this film because it's it feels like it's about exploring his work and who he was through people who were aware of him, whose palette echoes his. And I, I kind of feel like Jarmusch has redefined what a biopic can be, making films that are not about the subject and yet entirely about them. And to be honest, I'll watch Adam Driver do anything for ninety minutes, and, uh, and especially if there are a lot of, of cuts to the reactions of an English bulldog. You know, I'm, I'm completely okay with him leaning on this device. So we're going to be doing our, our you know top five films later, and uh, this just missed out on the cut for me. This is a this is a close six.
1: Wow, I feel like I watch a completely different film to you.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or maybe
1: I'm just a different person. So, full disclosure, God, this feels like coming out. I am a poet. <laughs> That's what I do with the rest of my time, kids. And I find watching films about writers 99% unbearable. You know, they hold their pens wrong and... <laughs> Just, you know, they don't get their nose at quite the right angle when they're looking up and seeking inspiration. Mm, Um, I am all for films that bring poetry, you know... To the people, films that explore the fact that a poet is a human being, that there can be working-class, blue-collar writers, that writing happens around the edges of other work. You know, you don't have to put on a fake nose and sit in a fancy armchair, (coughs) Nicole Kidman. And you know, one of my favourite lines about being a poet is when Audre Lord says, "You know, a lot of people of colour become poets because being a poet is the cheapest art form you can do it on a bus, on the back of a bus ticket." Mm. And that was sort of my hope from Patton that it would be this. Great you know exploration of of what it means to be a worker and a writer and that's certainly something that william carlos williams who wrote an epic poem called patterson about the time to- town that he came from and about you know the the pe- ordinary people's lives or people's lives that that he witnessed he was a doctor and so he got to see the very intimate details of people's lives and um i thought you know i was hoping it would have something of like that and that it would be more like dead man it would have more of a spark of of humor about this ridiculous elitist you know sense that poetry is something very elitist and I just thought it was another like oh dude Bro's is a genius movie complete with like you know patient help meet, um you know who just loves baking yeah so apologies to hola shifter farahani who is a fantastic actor and is just lumped with one of the most thankless It's like Donald Trump is already president. You know, she's back in the kitchen. (laughs) Um, I can't bear watching Adam Driver do anything, which probably You know, he is like Darth Weiner. I prefer him with the helmet on. So I was excited for this film because I love Dead Man and I love poetry. You know, I thought, yay, poetry. And I was just irritated the whole way through. So... That sucks for me because it, you know, it sounds like you saw a great film and I wish I could have seen that film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I could, well, as, as you describe why you didn't like it, I can definitely see, see that. If you don't like Adam driver, then this is not a film you would enjoy.
1: Why do you like him? Like what, what sell him to me?
0: I, I find him such an, uh, he's got such an unusual energy and presence and, and an idiosyncrasy that, that just feels so off center and, and, so different from what we're used to seeing like I, I like any actor that that does something that I don't feel any other actor could do and you know from from first seeing him in in uh, in girls you know being actually finding him quite off-putting those first few episodes and then slowly being won over by by this this very strange energy from this very strange looking man and and seeing him filter that through through a character who is so gentle and quiet is is I don't know I found that appealing
1: yeah he just seems like every hipster dude bro to me (laughs) i live in a very beard intensive world Mm. i maybe if i'd seen him in something other than girls first i would i would see it but to me he's always playing that character playing someone else
0: interesting interesting well to another another film from this month i
1: i (laughs) adored (laughs) One TV star made A-list movie star to another. Oh, that's quite good. That's quite good. Chris Pratt in Passengers.
0: Yes, yes. Chris Pratt in Passengers. Now, did you see this?
1: I haven't caught up with it yet. I am quite interested, but I want to cut the Michael Sheen bits out because he also really annoys me. That's right. I forgot about that. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, (laughs) Well, if they're that that memorable, I think I'll be (laughs) fine. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, no, I remember he was in it. I forgot you didn't like Michael Sheen. Look, th- it's, a re- it's such a weird film. It's There's a lot of really good ideas going on in this film, sort of underneath. And the casting of Hollywood's two biggest it stars at the moment and an ending that feels implausibly upbeat and heavily retooled, like you can feel the editing and the notes in those final five minutes, uh, undercuts what promises to be quite... Like a much more sinister work. there are a lot of good ideas shining through there 's some strange Kubrick homaging weirdly enough there 's a bit of two thousand and one, but there 's much more the shining in there uh, and mm-hmm. I, I think that 's suitably unsettling they take They take the premise of a man who is on who has been woken up way too early from a, a deep sleep um, he 's meant to be spending you know a hundred years or so. In a, uh, you know, with all the other passengers on the spaceship until they reach the planet, he's meant to be put in um, stasis. And he wakes up too early because of computer error, and after, a, you know, a year of being lonely, he uh, falls in love, or he thinks he does, with uh, with a woman and then wakes her up and pretends it's a computer error uh, so they can fall in love and he can not be lonely. Now...
1: Wait. Wait, wait, what? He pretends it's a computer error?
0: Yeah, he doesn't tell her that... Uh, that okay, he, so he,
1: that, that is not in the trailer. The bit where he basically stalks her mm. and then makes her his sex slave. So I'm now going very cold on the idea of this film where he's like, I'm literally the only guy in the universe.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's absolutely right. And so there's been so much controversy and people uh, writing about what a terrible film this is because of that and i kind of agree but also it has to be acknowledged the film acknowledges this like it does not shy away from the fact that he has assaulted her in a sense um i think to make it just a shade more palatable they try to characterize it more as murder than rape they've said that He has murdered her by taking away the life that she would have had on this planet. You know, I get that in a mainstream film, it would have been made all the executives pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into this film very uncomfortable to, you know, portray handsome Chris Pratt as a rapist. You know, murder is more acceptable apparently, but you can see them attempting to grapple one to
1: murder. Obviously, you know, murder is more acceptable, but rape is more fashionable. So Mm. it's really to tell these days
0: exactly and yeah but i don't know i want to give them points because they they, they're grappling with the metaphor you know they're clearly aware of it and it would have been a huge misstep if they just completely missed it but they do fumble the ball and they do you know in their desire for the pretty leads to work together to fall in love all of this they do kind of screw it up in the end i feel um but i do think that they are acknowledging what what this is and and that makes it a more interesting film than it otherwise would have been on the other hand uh the end credits slam us directly into a song by Imagine Dragons and that knocks at least 3 stars off any rating <laughs> uh my god what well, that that is you know <laughs> that is the worst choice in this film, I gotta say. Never, never do that. So that's passengers.
1: Right. I I yeah. The thing for me about Chris Pratt and Adam Driver is they both got their start in ensemble TV shows. Mm. Obviously Girls for Adam Driver, Parks and Rec for Chris Pratt, where they were surrounded by lots of other incredibly talented people, mm-hmm. particularly incredibly talented women, and they are the people who've gone on to be A list film stars. Yes. Yes So I think it's Chris Pratt is doing Passengers. I want Amy Poehler to be the new General Organa.
0: Yeah, I I would see that film.
1: Or Rashida Jones to be Wonder Woman? Like, why is it the doofus white guys? I As I'm asking this question, I realise what the answer is. So I'm going to use that as a segue into my film of the month, mm-hmm. which is, has a bunch of doofus white guys, but guess what? They're in the background. Still an amazing achievement for a film in 2016, and it's Amat Asante's film, United Kingdom, which is a glorious epic historical drama of the kind made by only one previous British director who we may be talking about a bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, it's between London and Botswana, what was then Land, and it's the story of how it became independent Botswana, but it's also a love story, um, and it's a love story about a young white woman called Ruth, uh, played by Rosamund Pike, who falls in love with a young African man who's Black, who is studying uh, in London after the Second World War, Sarete Kama, who just so happens to be the uh, king-in-waiting of Beshwana land. And she doesn't know that when she meets him at a missionary dance. And from the opening, where these two young people meet at this church-organised dance, it just opened up an aspect of British history to me um, in a way that was, is very, very beautiful, very cleverly done, but also made me realize how limited my education was. I didn't know that there was this, you know, fantastic cosmopolitan world of international students and international politics, Mm. um, going on in London in the 1950s. And for me, one of the triumphs of the film is that you expect you know, once Ruth and Sorette get married, the whole film will transfer to Beshwanaland land and it will just be, you know, red sunsets with giraffes and 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 trees, like mm-hmm. the cover of a novel about Africa. Mm. But what I think is, is very clever in Guy Hibbert's uh, script, and that Asante handles brilliantly as someone who is um, herself bicultural, and that's, you know, was the subject of her film Belle as well, is that the film then cuts between Beshwana land and London. And Ruth is reasons to do with passports and complications in Beshwana land when Sorette has to come back to London and he has to negotiate um, the disgustingly corrupt well, that is British politics. So it felt pretty relevant uh, as well. And the character who got the biggest cheer in the film at the screening I saw was was Tony Benn, um, the the Labour politician who had principles and values. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I remember those. I remember those. And he shows up as a very young, pipe-smoking Anthony Benn. And, you know, he was an aristocrat who who let go of his title uh, to to serve the Labour Party. So so to make that a split story, I think, and to emphasise the fact of um, London being, you know, culturally and ethnically mixed in the 1950s, as she did, for, you know, in the 18th century for Bell. it just opened up a sense of how many more stories mm. there could be to be told um, coming out of this film. And the knowledge of film history in it is is amazing. There's sort of a, a moment in Beshwanaland that is almost like a, a pastiche. I think it is a pastiche of, of Zulu, um, but with the with the sort of polarities reversed, mm. as it were. Um, and it, quite a lot of it plays as, as a comedy, almost like Yes Minister, of just how incapable the British were. And, you know, we're told to think of the British Empire uh, in the films of certain filmmakers as, you know, badly heroic, mm. even if they were thing and you know just good chaps doing their best and actually it's you know a bunch of incompetent tossers um trying to gain their own advantage and love is is what wins out against them but love that is always also you know acknowledges how it's bound up with politics and the film, I, I was just sort of super moved by it. It was one of those really great cinematic experiences where the whole cinema is swept up and going along with it and crying and cheering at the end. And I, you, don't, you don't get very many of those anymore. You're just supposed to go out and buy the lunchbox. So mm. I, I really enjoyed that as an experience. And I thought even my racist grandma would have loved this film, which harked back to an earlier era of British Filmmaking and its sort of triumphant romanticism.
0: Fantastic. I, I didn't. I'm frustrated. I didn't get a chance to see it before the recording. Um, but I adored uh, Amores Santi's Bell, uh, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this one.
1: Well, try try and see it in a in a cinema if you can. Mm. If you can grab a matinee screening, it definitely is one to see with a passionate audience. In fact, it may be one of my films of the year.
0: Speaking of which. We are now joined by our uh, special guest for this month, filmmaker Rowan Spong. Rowan, welcome. Hi, Thank Roman. you very
2: much for having me.
0: Uh, it's our pleasure, and it's fitting that you should join us for this. Seg- I don't know why it's fitting; it just that feels like the sort of segue type thing you say. But uh, <laughs> you, uh, you made a, a, an excellent uh, film this year, Winter at Westbeth, one of the best films I saw this year. What was uh, what were your highlights of the year as we uh, we look back at twenty sixteen in cinema?
1: To be
2: honest, which is re- really, really dreadful to admit, I didn't go to the movies that much this year. Um, I kind of was watching a lot of old stuff. Um, I think maybe that's partially to do with travelling and doing film festivals and so forth with mm-hmm. Winter at Westbeth. But um, one of the films that I sat in on actually at MIFF at Melbourne International Film Festival this year was Notes on Blindness. and uh, It's a documentary about a theologian who is experiencing the onset of blindness and he made a series of tape recordings about that. And the filmmakers kind of reconstruct something that's like a hybrid narrative film and a hybrid documentary film using these tape recordings and reenactments. And I just found the whole thing incredibly immersive. I know that um, sort of using recordings in that way had been done before with films like The Arbor, but I just found this particular film really, really compelling and the, the visuals, it, it kind of walked you through his family's experience, but also his own experience of being blind and how he navigated through space when he couldn't see and how sort of the colors and light changed as those things were doing to him. I just found it a, a really immersive experience in the cinema.
1: That sounds amazing.
2: And I've been thinking about it all year since, so that's yeah. probably a good thing.
1: Did you have a chance to use the Notes on Blindness Oculus Rift app?
2: No, no, I didn't. I I know that there was the the VR kind of app, and I didn't get a chance to do it. I actually went to two sessions. I went to a session that that had narration in it, so that if there were sight-impaired people in the audience, there were elements of the story which were explained, and then I'd previously seen it sort of in it with its standard sound mix. But I didn't actually see the VR accompaniment, no. Hmm.
1: There was such a long queue for it at Sheffield DocFest. I didn't get to see it either, but it made me think <clears throat> the film was so immersive in and of itself that it achieved that just with, you know, the traditional tools that cinema has previously had. It made me wonder, you know, what that next step was. But obviously VR is something that, that everyone is really excited about and it's kind of cool that it would be a documentary um, and such a quiet, thoughtful documentary that would be one of the first great users of it. So that, I thought, I found that really interesting.
0: And what, what were your uh, other highlights, Sophie?
1: Yeah, I found myself sort of dividing it up into categories. I don't, maybe because the Oscars were so shit this year that I thought, okay, I've got to do my own. <laughs> so, um, my favourite animated film, that was a very hotly contested category that really came down to a fistfight between When Marnie Was There and Trolls. And When Marnie sure. Was There won on points... Only because it wasn't trying to sell me a lunchbox. Um, although if there is a When Money Was There lunchbox, please, Hellas for hyphenet fans, do tweet us and let me know where I can buy it. I am wearing my Spirited Away socks as we podcast. So uh, it's not like I'm not a sucker for the Ghibli merchandise. And I, in, I, in general, I thought like American animated cinema had a really great year much better than American studio live action cinema so the whole my sort of franchise hit was a bit of a race to the bottom until I remembered Creed so I'm gonna I'm gonna put Creed on that list just because I actually it was an American studio film I actually enjoyed really high bar um I thought it was great and then of the sort of Oscar type nominations I it was room um, Lenny Abrahamson's film from Emma Donoghue's book which I had thought was came out last year but apparently it came out this year. It's a very long time ago. Brexit kind of broke the year in half. I don't know if the Australian election had the same effect for you guys but I can't really remember anything from before the 30th of June. It's like a, the continent has just drifted away. Metaphorically. And then my other two picks. Best British film of the year for me was Emma Asante's United Kingdom. Although I, Daniel Blake, put in a very solid performance contesting that. I just, you know, it feels like there haven't been very many films this year where you can actually escape. You know, cinema has really failed as an escapist form this year and the United Kingdom just had this lovely balance of having absolutely very, actually, I think, you know, influenced by the filmmaker we're going to come and talk about. Stunning scenery, very thoughtful about politics, great writing, great performances. David Oyelowo with no shirt on. All good stuff. And then for, for the art house win, I think it's going to be Athena Rachel Sangari's Chevalier. A weird little film that I saw on the night before the Brexit vote, so it's been a bit tainted by association. But it's basically about how if you put a group of men in a space and try and get them to do anything, they will just start comparing the length of their cocks with each other and not achieve anything. And that seemed very... um like a profound comment on the political situation also hilarious so that's that's my top five (laughs) top five cock films of the year what about you lee
0: well yeah i uh look i missed so so much this year i know like generally speaking i saw more films than most people generally manage in a year but compared to previous years i saw very few and I, i missed a number that are being cited as some of the best of the year but to run down my top five um Uh, One of the 2015 holdovers that came out in Australia and the UK in 2016 was The Hateful Eight. It wedged its way into my favourites and remained there throughout the calendar year. And even though I do think it's kind of bloated and unwieldy, I still love Tarantino's version of bloated and unwieldy. Uh, I I do think he he gets away with that and then some. Uh, Number four for me was La La Land. I've seen so many people cite Umbrellas of Cherbourg and you know that's certainly true but due, due to my own sort of cinematic leanings i saw so much stanley donnan and gene kelly everywhere i looked and that just hit me in my sweet spot it's it's the perfect mix of nostalgic and contemporary and it avoids being cynical which was, which would have been so easy for it but it's still very self-aware and it's probably the most i've enjoyed watching a film all year uh, number 3 was the neon demon i'm really enjoying this groove that nicholas winding Refn has has found himself in uh number two, speaking of, you know, singularity of vision and hyper stylized dramatics. Uh number two was High Rise. I loved Ben Wheatley's, you know, parable about class and society with, you know, this kind of futurism and nostalgia all combined into one. And my number one film of the year is a film that really should not have worked. Uh, and that is Personal Shopper. It's... Oh I hate
1: it trolls
0: <laughs> i still haven't got to it i still haven't got to it but i'll revise if i do see it um,
1: it's like Neon demon Cross* with personal shopper for kids
0: with la 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 <laughs> i don't know whether to believe you or not but i'll, I'll know soon enough um, <laughs> i
1: saw it on facebook it must be true
0: <laughs> well look given how i felt about some of olivia esaias's earlier work and like my dislike of twilight I, I'm amazed that Assayus is, is like one of my favourite working filmmakers now, based on his last two films, and Christian Stewart is one of my favourite actors, which is I definitely did not see coming. And you know, 20, 2016 was a year for pulling the rug out from under me and probably under all of us. And but realizing that I was a fan of those two people was probably one of the more pleasant examples of this. So that's my top five.
1: Nice.
2: <laughs> nice. I should add um actually another film that I saw during the year that has kind of left an indelible mark has been um Certain Women Kelly Reichardt's film and yes. I, it's funny it didn't jump back into my head until you mentioned Christian Stewart and I was also somebody who never would have thought that I would have ordered one of her performances but this has kind of like been the year of her kind of having a bit of a renaissance really hasn't it Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, with those two films But I, I found that film I was really profoundly moved when I left the cinema It's odd that I guess perhaps Because it's a, a quieter sort of filmmaking practice That it didn't sort of jump into my mind As immediately being one of my favourites of the year But I'm glad that you mentioned Kristen Stewart Because it sort of jumped back in Yeah, absolutely Now I
1: feel really, really disloyal But I yeah, Certain Women is definitely going to be on my 2017 list I was trying to organise this stuff, focusing on UK theatrical releases. Mm. But I feel like 2016, for me, has been a much less interesting cinematic year than I think 2017 is shaping up to be. And Certain Women is definitely one of the hot tickets for that, along with Moonlight, um, Camera Person. I know, you know, we're on different continents now, so that whole Mm. theatrical release thing, we barely know what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Anymore, (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. But, uh, just to give myself some guidelines um, and to force myself to go back before the summer and go you know that bit of the year did exist and there was there was stuff but *Certain Women I think you know it's a film we need and uh, I'm really excited for everyone to see it next year
0: absolutely Alright, Rowan, please tell us which filmmaker have you selected for your filmmaker of the month?
2: This week on Hell is for High Finals, <laughs> I have chosen to speak about David Lean.
0: <laughs> Woo! Excellent. No, that's such a great there choice. They
2: should be fanfare, shouldn't they? They really there should. They should be fanfare in like a big widescreen sort of shot with an overture and. Something going uh, on. Can
1: <laughs> we <at least laughs> edit in the Rank Gong? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I like that idea. I like that idea. <laughs> so why David Lean? I came to David Lean's films sort of indirectly. I um, I didn't go out and see sort of Lawrence of Arabia, you know, at the Aster first, day, first but rather I saw a bunch of his films sort of in early morning programming on the ABC way back when mm-hmm. um, and I remember I think I was up ill one night I can't remember why I was I was up at like four in the morning I think it was I was still like a high school kid and Blythe Spirit was on
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I, I just turned it on I thought okay yeah a movie I'll watch it great and and what first struck me was the colors so I mean, I think of of all David Lean's films after he moved from, from black and white to colour, his use of colour is just amazing. Each film's have their own kind of palette. And, of course, Blythe Spirit has this kind of 30s, 40s, greenish palette that then intensifies as the ghost of the dead wife arrives, that she's this, painted this strange colour green. And I just found the whole thing really quite magical, and the plot moves at breakneck speed, and it's incredibly entertaining, and it's just a, a rollicking good ride. And I kind of put the name David Lean back in in my mind. I just sort of filed it away and thought, yes, that, that was, there was that funny film from 1945 that I'd seen. Um, and it wasn't until sort of later at, at university that I began to explore the the rest of his, uh, you know, amazing. Uh, canon of films. Yeah. And aside from, I guess, the colour palette, which, which strongly attracted me to his work, this idea of exploring space, that you don't simply, you know, put up an establishing shot and then cut into the action, but the camera moves through space in an unusual way in his films. I think a great example of, of what I guess I'm, I'm trying to articulate would be in Summertime, the 1955 film with Catherine Hepburn, and she's mm. just arrived in Venice, and there's this wonderful moment where she gets off the train and you uh, there's this almost like POV shot which moves through the train station and out to kind of like her first glimpse of Venice. And it's this tracking shot that moves through the crowd. And the way that it's edited, you initially think it's a POV shot. And then it sort of swings around slightly to the left to reveal that it's a tracking shot which now contains Catherine Hepburn Um, And then, you know, a few shots later she's walking down uh, a very narrow, narrow alley and the camera sort of drifts up and and sort of collects the narrowness and the oppressiveness of um, these buildings, these dark buildings kind of encroaching in on her space and the sense of kind of danger of being in a new city really beautifully. He doesn't just kind of explore things in in simply wide shots, but they're often wide-moving shots Mm. and he collects a sort of a lot of the the, I don't know, the location coming to life. In Summertime, one of the great motifs is the statues. When you see the statues in the beginning of the film that are littered around Venice, uh, they're all very stationary and Katharine Hepburn is shooting them with her movie camera, her her movie camera. And then later, as she falls in love with the handsome Italian man, the film cuts back to similar statues, which are now the the motorised statues. So it's like the city has come to life and they're, moving as they bang bells with mallets and so forth so i don't know i i just love i, I think he's he's a filmmaker that explores space and uses color in a really really interesting way
0: mm. it, it's certainly very strange watching his early films that are in black and white and in four by three and you know the, the idea that we have of david lean as being ultra wide screen and bright colors <laughs> and, you know he, he started off you know with quite you know t- tight tight shots and you know a monochromatic palette.
1: That was the David that I grew up with, was Brief Encounter... Um, and the two Dickens films, Oliver Twist Mm. and Great Expectations so I have some sense and I think it's quite common for British people to feel that Lean betrayed us by leaving the stiff upper lip world of Milford Haven Railway Station Cafe and going off to the jungle (laughs) and the desert and uh, having, you know, Johnny Foreigner in the film, generally played by Alec Guinness to reassure us that it wasn't wasn't too foreign Uh, and I think People turned against him when he became successful, which is a very common story in Britain. Particularly, he went and hooked up with this American producer Sam Spiegel, um, whose name sounds like it was invented for a, a brash American storyteller. Um, who he first worked with on Bridge on the River on the River Kwai, which in many ways is seen as a quintessentially British film, which I think is bizarre considering that it's about insane british people who are bonkers (laughs) and who do these things that are just not explicable and you know i don't think lean is fully endorsing them but you know it's on every boxing day and it's this totally heroic british story and then he makes lauren's and dr shivago and they're huge hits in america and um i think people get a bit sniffy about him and i think he's in film studies, people are a bit sniffy about him as well. He's seen as soulless or empty or mechanical, overblown. Somehow he can be both of these things, like over-sentimental and soulless and mechanical. He's not been given his due in the mm. same way that Hitchcock or Powell and Pressburger, who he he edited for, he edited One of Our Aircraft Is Missing. They're considered auteurs and he somehow wasn't for a long time. And it was really interesting to go back to those early black and white films and see how brutally efficient they are you know there's not a wasted bit in Brief Encounters it really is lean but he's already finding these ways to make huge epic stories out of out of feelings out of people's gestures Mm. and then he you know he comes to work with Omar Sharif and makes you know, two of the, for me, greatest films of all time, including one of the greatest love stories and Dr Zhivago. So I read uh, an a by Anthony Lane that Noel Coward said to David Lean, if Petro O'Toole had been any prettier in Lawrence of Arabia, they had to have called it Florence of Arabia. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favourite love stories. I think the love between Lawrence and Sharif Ali, I, when mm. I was a kid I understood something from that film that I couldn't articulate and the film doesn't articulate but as an adult it's so clear to me that yeah. he's capturing a, a queer love story and that that's part of the tragedy at the end of the film. And uh, you know, Laura, Lean is the master of repression and the repressed passion. And uh, for me, Lawrence is its high point.
0: Absolutely, and it's certainly a you know something that that you see in Brief Encounter. You know how beautifully restrained it is. Yeah, Brief Encounter, in, encounter is 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 one of the key ones. It's it's I think it's one of the best films ever made. It it, it inspired Billy Wilder to make The Apartment. It inspired Robert Altman to just make films in general. That the, and there's so much going on in in, in that film and his technique, he, I mean, he's he's obviously got a rich command of character, of actors, of of storytelling and and, and pacing. But the technical, his technical proficiency, you know, there there are, there are things like there's a Dutch tilt to show something is wrong. Decades before we would that would become a common thing. Telling the same story from different perspectives. Decades before that, Rashomon. In, in Oliver Twist, there's a bit of slow motion during. An argument with Nancy in one thousand nine hundred and forty eight you know try and think of any, any other slow motion that was used in this way for effect in forty eight or, or earlier and he started off it was interesting last month we were talking about Nicholas Rogue, who began as an editor and then became a director and actually worked for David lean. Lean started as an editor too as, as you say Sophie. so there are a lot of films in addition to brief encounter that deal with the idea of infidelity. And nearly every time he he mentions it, he brings it up, like from the passionate friends in forty nine, uh, summertime, the Catherine Hepburn in 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 fifty five, Doctor Zhivago. Every time infidelity is is brought up, it is it is done so with enormous sympathy, and. It's interesting, David Lean's father ran off with another woman and Lean himself was considered, you know, was called by uh, his co-writer a notorious womanizer and was actually married six times. And it it, it kind of feels like, you know, coming from that perspective, he's introducing not, I don't want to say free love, but the idea that the heart wants what it wants, you know, decades before that would become an acceptable thing for society. You know, you, you think of, uh, of how many films would, would demonise anyone who had an affair, whereas he, he deals with these characters quite sympathetically, quite gently. Sorry, I covered a lot of ground there. I was uh, jumping around a lot. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was going to say, hark- harking back um, to what Sophie had said about, um, you know, the films, the, the earlier films being black and white and kind of having a look about them, they're still very vivid regardless. You know, if you think about Oliver Twist and that opening scene where Oliver's mother is is kind of climbing over the hill with those kind of almost biblical um, mm. clouds behind her uh, and, and the really kind of unusual angles that Ling chooses to shoot that hill and, you know, the small silhouette of the mother and the kind of epicness that he's able to manage even within that you know, four by three aspect ratio mm. um and and presumably kind of limited studio means, it's really like an amazing technical feat. And and orally as well, even the from the early films, you know, the way that, you know, the tra you hear the trains come in and out of the scenes in mm. brief encounter, the way that the music sweeps up, the way that the, the voiceover is used as a sort of narration at times, sometimes almost like a documentary and other times like the inner monologue of um, the main character, mm. it's, yeah, he has a really amazing understanding of the medium, even in these early films.
1: Both the, that incredible use of, um, in a monologue, voiceover, you know, the thing that you're supposedly not meant to do as a screenwriter, and I think a lot of people don't remember that Brief Encounter is a, a film that's framed by um, by voiceover, and mm. that persistent use of very, very dramatic shadows Uh, does make it seem like Lean is is prefiguring or working alongside Noir. If you think about the shadow of the lovers in the train tunnel when they finally kiss for the first time in Brief Encounter and their shadows loom up behind them and then the shadow of other people walking in who are about to catch them comes and follows them down the platform. All throughout his filmmaking, there's this interest in the shadow and that yokes together the black and white cinema and those... The amazing use of shadows in in the opening of um, Great Expectations, for example, and then the shadows in the desert in in Lawrence. This this interest in you know the. His films, so my friend Davina and I, an apologies to Davina, he probably, this is from our dark past, we used to do performance art together, and we had a sketch uh, that was a parody of sort of British cinema, and it was all about Marmite, Vegemite, uh, for my audience on the other side of the world, and it just went like this, you know, oh darling, the Marmite. Yes, darling, I'm going to war for the Marmite. But darling, don't forget about the Marmite. And it could, you know, it would, just, it would go on for hours because we were really annoying teenagers. And that, that is Lean's reputation, that the, the films are kind of these empty signifiers of a stiff upper lip. But their interest in the shadow side, the fact that he constantly chooses characters who are not aristocrats, so the whole... Um, story in Lawrence that Lawrence is trying to work out his place in the world as someone who doesn't have his father's name and is not an officer, is not accepted in the officer's bar. That's the story in Great Expectations and Oliver Twist as well, these young men who don't know where they are in the world. The These anomalous female characters in The Passionate Friends, for example, uh, where Anne Todd's character wants to, she says she wants to belong to herself, which is it's an extraordinary thing for a, a woman in a sort of middlebrow film to be saying she doesn't want to marry get married because she wants to belong to herself there's this this kind of shadow side that if you were a noir director we would be saying oh yes immediately this is what he's interested in he's interested in people's darker motivations um in madeline what makes a nice uh, upper class glasgow girl potentially poison someone Uh, I mean, annoying moustache is the answer. Madeleine, you're completely right. Um, Whether you did did it or not, that moustache is so irritating. Um,
2: It's it's not a great moustache. And, and you know,
1: Lean will never have one uh, national cliché when he he can have several, and that character is French. Like, (laughs) Le Puy is French. And yet, you know, in the later films, he becomes this incredibly subtle analyst of British colonialism and of the the sort of quite dark um, drivers of it in Passage to India. Mm. Yeah, I feel like there is this sort of shadow side to lean as well, that works best when he has fantastic contributors and source material, and then when he's off on his own, say with um, Ryan's daughter, uh, it just mm, gets away from him somewhat.
0: It does a little, yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. well, look, I, I want to I come back to Ryan's daughter in a, in a second, but uh, it was there's something you mentioned about... The fact that, I mean, it was, it was quite surprising to me to, to look up so much criticism and discussion about his work and, and discover that he's, his work was considered hollow. You know, David Thompson says that Lawrence of Arabia, is its, it's spectacle is, is what it's about. The film itself is hollow, and I disagree entirely because there's something that he does in both Brief Encounter and Lawrence of Arabia, which in most of the time in cinema really annoys me, and here, in both of these films... I think is perfect, which is beginning at the end. In Lawrence of Arabia we begin with his death and we go right into his eulogy. And we see the mun- how mundane his death is, but we also allow the eulogies to precede our introduction to him. So somebody says he's a hero, somebody says he's a braggart, somebody says he's a self-promoter, somebody else thinks he's a genius. We give him permission to see the best and worst of him before we even get started. And in an era of distinctly uncomplicated leading men, this Shows the, the the complexity of of Lawrence, who throughout the film is shown to be all of those things. You know, he, he we see the best and the worst of him, which is why I think Lawrence of Arabia is 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 so fascinating. And just as an aside, I, I you know I, I mentioned it in um, in comparison to uh, two thousand and one. You know, the two. The, the other month, you know, the two films that I think must be seen on the big screen as as big as possible, and uh, and I think you know there's that great match cut in 2001 of the bone and the spaceship. I think the the only one in cinema that bests it is a literal match cut in Lawrence of
2: Arabia, where we go
0: from the match <laughs> to the sun. My favorite favorite ever.
2: That that maybe that's how they came up with the phrase match cut. Could maybe. be. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about Ryan's daughter? Please, please. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the cat amongst the pigeons here. <laughs> I, I find Ryan's daughter profoundly moving. I know that it has its issues. I know that perhaps um, you know the the Irish village is, is sketched in fairly you know minimal terms, uh, and perhaps it's not the greatest depiction of a group of people. I totally understand and recognise that, <laughs> but let me do this. I just think it's so well structured, and and I know people say it's over long and it's over bloated and it's just you know a a very kind of small domestic story that doesn't require the kind of you know the the leanisms, the sort of wide shots, the epic storm sequence, etc. Mm. But I think what he's doing is is about kind of experimenting with you know running several uh, lines of plot alongside one another several subplots alongside one another and I think he's doing it in a far more elegant way in a far more kind of tightly woven way than say Dr Zhivago where you have that kind of umbrella story at the you know the start and the end of the film you have the you know the uprising the Irish uprising against the British you have this young girls kind of dreams of having a a romantic liaison with the school teacher and then of course falling for the British soldier there's that sort of mutiny that the, the father does. And it's one of my favourite all-time sequences in a film. Mm. It appears in Ryan's Daughter. And it's where the shell-shocked um, officer is sort of in that he's standing in the bar waiting to be served. And his hand begins to shake. And mm. he can um, see the village idiot sort of kicking the wooden seat that he's sitting on. And he likens it to the, the sound of bombs being dropped or mm. the, the rhythm of machine gun fire in in a series of shots, and, and it's quite discombobulating the way that they're put together, he drops to the floor, he sort of rolls across the floor, and we now see that he's not in the bar anymore, but rather he's back kind of in the field of, of battle. And then he's sort of in this dark place, and then we see the romantic lead female sort of reach into the shot and caress him, and then the lights come up and it reveals that we're back in the bar. And I thought that the way that that moment was handled was just so kind of elegant and romantic and it was a really unusual way of kind of moving um through I guess a a character's emotional state what he was thinking of and and taking him through several locations just through editing and lighting Mm. you know as a practitioner I you know that moment for me was just a really kind of eye-opening moment about how you could cut materials together to to make a story make sense And again, I just love the color of this film. I I think it's got its own wild color palette, and it kind of, it it starts out as this almost like a pastel, kind of seaside story, and then it becomes full of these bright reds and greens, and becomes incredibly vivid as the lovers fall in love. I just love this film. I really love it. I
0: I have to say, even though I didn't take to the film overall, I loved elements. I loved sequences. (laughs) I thought, you know, all the in, all the individual elements worked and I totally agree with you about that that scene. Um, that that really impressed me. You're not gonna believe me, but this is one hundred percent true that for years I was convinced this film was about Tatum O'Neill. I don't know why. I just like <laughs> I heard Ryan's daughter and I just thought I, I swear to God until I watched it. <laughs>
1: Um. (laughs) I have to say that for years I thought it was an adaptation of a Thomas Hardy novel, like I remember seeing not all of it as a kid my childhood basically consisted of being made to watch films by my grandma and um Being convinced that it must have some literary source, but actually it's one of the few lean films that doesn't. And maybe that's, for me, why it feels a bit undisciplined. But watching it again as an adult, one of the things that really struck me was like, oh my God, this is where Lars von Trier stole Breaking the Waves from. The musical structure, the interruption with the landscape shots, the putting this relationship at the centre and making it this big drama. And re-watching the lean films, for me, has been... Almost like this kind of cheat sheet on where auteurs have stolen stuff from. So rewatching watching Bridge on the River Kwai and thinking that scene where the um, Sri Lankan female porters are putting the soot on the American and Canadian soldier who are going to blow up the bridge, that's where the thin red line comes from boom, just taken from Mm. that scene, along with the tracks through the jungle. So seeing Lean as this playbook that while people like David Thompson and Vincent Canby, particularly American critics, I think because Americans don't come off terribly well in Lean (laughs) films, you know, Americans hated Lawrence and there's only one American in Lawrence and he's a cynical journalist. But directors have just, those images are, are so visionary and incendiary and so generative that you can look across sort of post nineteen seventy cinema and go that well that was taken from someone watching a David Lean film and maybe not even remem- remembering that they'd seen it. Yeah, not just the obvious ones like oh the English patient and is a cross between Lawrence of Arabia and Doctor Zhivago, but these small hallucinatory moments and it's really interesting that that's what we've come back, Rowan. You- you're particularly picking up these flashes. Um, Whereas we usually think about Lena as this epic filmmaker, actually it's in these tiny moments, these decisions that are so telling.
2: There's a great moment in in Summertime where uh, Catherine Hepburn's character sort of arrives at the place where she's going to be staying in in Venice. And then the characters, the other characters who are in the scene sort of leave. Mm. And then the camera just lingers on her and she's just sort of standing Awkwardly, like she doesn't quite know what to do and where to go, and she doesn't quite have the, I guess, the courage to go outside into into Venice just yet. And it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful moment because I think you know we've all been there in Mm. in that scenario where you travel and you put your bags down, you're like, oh, I don't know whether I can go out and deal with it just yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a, it's such a true and telling moment of traveling. And when I saw it again the other night, I I just laughed. I thought it was. Such a great observation. Mm. Um, I think he's a great observer of people, and I think that that's part of of why he's able to explore the emotional landscape around them because he understands what makes people tick.
0: And I wonder if that's why he was able to discover so many great actors. You know, because of of course he, you know, gave Peter O'Toole his first big role in Lawrence of Arabia, but he also pretty much discovered John Mills, Richard Attenborough, Gene Simmons. Um, and even a, a young, uh, even a uh, Faulty Towers fans, a young Prunella Scales turns up in um, in Hobson's Choice. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of very familiar faces who get uh, their first, you know, moment of screen time in uh, in David Lean films.
1: Did you spot the very young Alec Guinness in Great Expectations?
0: I did. I, I it took me a second to recognise him, but yeah.
1: I know. It, you do realise that this is someone who is building a rep company around himself, and he worked. Um, again and again with the same crew members, yeah, uh, Winston Ryder, his, uh, his sound artist. you know, he worked repeatedly with the same cinematographers, with Maurice Shaw, the composer, on all of his epics. So it is fascinating. He worked three times with Anne Todd, Passionate Friends, Madeline and The Sound Barrier, um, who was his third wife. I mm. uh, made three brilliant, luminous films with her, met her at, at a party In the late 70s I think and was very polite to her and the person he was with said but David that was your wife and he said oh which one (laughs) I (laughs) think he he was on to number 6 by that point of course Um, he was yeah But for me she's been one of the great discoveries because Passionate Friends and Madeline were not films and the Sound Barrier were not films that I knew. Mm. And the Sound Barrier is probably the most darling of all of them. It's about the um air um aeroplane engineers who manage to go faster than the speed of sound. And she's just, you know, she's not Catherine Hepburn and she's not Peter O'Toole, but she's absolutely wonderful and he puts her in these three very, very different roles mm. that seem very telling and it's it for me there's a real sadness about the fact that obviously when their marriage ended her career more or less ended as well not wishing to introduce a you know a note of harsh criticism or anything but sometimes he did pick people up and then put them down again as well yeah i don't think alec guinness loved how he was treated on bridge on the river quite bit. you know he was locked in an oven for a start but he, he kept working with Lean uh, right up till Passage to India. His God Bowl is probably, I think, one of the, the places where Lawrence, go, uh, where Lawrence Lean uh, goes wrong in, in terms of casting a few missteps.
2: Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's not like one of the kind of most offensive depictions of Yellowface. It's not, you know, the landlord in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but it, it mm. is a mistake that, uh, you know, a white actor was cast in that role. And it's a mistake also because, you know, when you watch the film, he doesn't sort of appear until about, I think, about 30 or 40 minutes in. And up until that point, Lean's done this amazing job of kind of constructing, I guess, a, a sort of commentary or criticism of the British Raj mm. in India at that time. Um, you know, we see trains going over to these big sort of bridges and then the people who are sleeping below the bridges. We We get a sense of the economy of the cities that these people are moving through. And then suddenly you have this white actor, blacked mm. up in blackface, playing this wise Indian sort of mystic character. It is a misstep. It is unfortunate. And it's, you know, otherwise such a great, interesting film.
0: Yeah. And and it was, yeah, and that proved to be his last. He had two unrealized projects. Uh, there was Mutiny on the Bounty, which I think he was looking to make before that. Uh, he was going to make it as a two-part film, and that, that uh, fell through because I think it was too ambitious uh, for the studio. And then after Passage to India, he was six weeks away from filming uh, Joseph Conrad's Nostromo uh, when he died, and they didn't end up making the film. So he certainly did keep working up until his final moments. But, uh, yeah, it's a hell of a filmography. It's uh, not many films, but uh, lengthwise, I think he uh, he rivals
2: uh, <laughs> Hitchcock or Altman, yeah. Yeah in terms of minutes he probably does okay.
1: If you throw in some of the films he edited as well one of mm. our aircraft is missing 49 parallel major barbara pygmalion for me those count.
2: Yeah
0: yeah I don't know I, I just uh, I think I think while I was watching um Ryan's daughter I was he had the overture then the interval and then there was the sort of long end credits I thought god are you getting paid per minute of screen time if if you're working <laughs> in Australian sketch comedy you would just clean up. But yeah, it's... I
1: love the David Lean's Australian sketch comedy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, that is a sketch, <laughs> Yes, I could adapt. Uh, I could adapt your old sketches. <laughs> but yeah, and it's seriously, an, an amazing filmmaker and such an indelible influence on really all the cinema we see today. You know, his, his fingerprints are still quite evident. And um, and yeah, Rowan, thank you so much uh, for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me. I hope the uh the Skype connection was okay. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed chatting to you about David Lane and and hearing what you had to say. Uh oh, it's been our pleasure.
0: And yes, happy new year everybody. We'll see you uh yeah. we'll see you all in the new year and uh hopefully 2017 will be uh be a step up.
1: <laughs> well, we'll we'll start the year with the chance to talk about everything that's wrong and how to solve it with our next guest.
0: Yes, a bit, little bit of a tease for our first uh first podcast back for 2017 but uh yeah until then we'll see you next year